Welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged, the podcast in which we take a look at what is making headlines in the world of NHS IT. I'm your host, Andrea Downey, and I'm senior reporter here at Digital Health. Hi everyone and welcome to Digital Health Unplugged. My name is Hannah Crouch, editor at Digital Health and I'm your host for this episode which will be discussing the general practice data for planning and research services. That's GPDPR if you're into your acronyms Um, and this is due to replace the general practice extraction service. This new service was first announced in May with NHS Digital setting an implementation date of July 1st and citizens were given until June 23rd to opt out. NHS Digital has said the service will give planners and researchers faster access to patient information. They promise that any data which directly identifies an individual will be pseudonized and then encrypted before it leaves a GP practice and that the data will only be shared with organisations who have a legal basis and meet strict criteria. This includes using it for local, regional and national planning, policy development, commissioning, public health and research purposes. However, many organisations and individuals have expressed concerns that this is a care.data part two with it even being labelled an NHS data grab. There have also been concerns raised about lack of communications, with patients not given enough time to opt out. Following a public outcry, it was announced the implementation date would be moved to September 1st, so that more time could be allocated to speak with patients, doctors, health charities and others. Joining me today to discuss this ever-changing story is Phil Booth, who's a coordinator at MedConfidential, Osman Batty, who's an East London GP, Anne-Marie Cunningham, who's also a GP and sits on our CCIO um, network advisory panel, and my colleague Andrea Downey, who's the usual um, host of these podcasts at Digital Health. I know there's a lot to discuss, but let's kick off with the main question. What has been your reaction to the the delay? Phil, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Um, So there's been a delay. The upload date uh, has been shifted from the 1st of July to the 1st of September, but At this point, we've heard nothing more than possibly there'll be some more comms. So the entire sort of problem, if you like, with the programme, which could have been good, um, you know, they haven't been fixed. We need to see that there are a bunch of things that are done. And obviously, one of them is to communicate to patients. And we've said all along, since before care.data in 2014, that that means writing to every patient, explaining what's going to be done with their data, providing them with their choices and the means to exercise them. And then when the data, if people have not dissented, when the data is taken, it goes into what's called a safe setting. Now, NHS Digital has one of those, but it's not being used for anything like uh, the amount that they said it would be. And certainly at this point, it still looks like the data will be disseminated in a form that is personal data. We further would suggest that we keep this conversation going so that patients know how their data has been used. And because this data will all be pseudonymized, those pseudonyms will permit NHS Digital to be able to inform a patient, not just we've given data to some organization or other, but whether their data has been involved in research or something which may have come up with positive treatments or some research results that have been helpful. So we see that this is a absolutely uh, necessary thing that we make proper use of data that is collected within the NHS, not just in general practice. Uh, But the way that the program has been rushed out and really poorly communicated does make it look very much like a data grab by the government uh, during a pandemic when general practice is actually really busy 
um, with the vaccination program, for example. So, you know, there are many problems. We don't believe that they are unfixable, but we believe they have to be fixed and to be seen to be fixed before we actually proceed. And kind of uh, Osman and, and Anne-Marie, as your perspective of GPs, do you think, do you think, sorry, the, the September deadline is long enough? What's kind of been your both reactions? I'm not sure who wants to jump in first. Um, so I'll, I'll go first. And um, so, so essentially, um, so again, it's been welcome, as, as Phil said. I think um, it's, it's one of those things where it has been rushed through when we have been so busy in primary care where you know, the, the notice is, was initially initially six weeks and um, six weeks uh, to just um, have a directive to say that your data will leave the practice and being unclear as to what it was going to be used for did ring some alarm bells and I think just just stepping back and and thinking about um, you know what what is actually going on in in general practice and um, the, the fact that we are so busy and if this directive is coming down and we know and I t- totally agree with what the um, uh, the announcement said that data does save lives and actually there is uh, the citizens right to own their data but actually the reality is is that um, the patients have given the general practitioner uh, information about their care to be held confidentially and so the general practitioner is essentially the data controller so it's controlling that data that they hold um, and so if that is going to be lifted up and taken elsewhere that there should be some clarity as to where that data is going and what it's going to be used for so that patients are informed and just by speaking to my colleagues um, they don't know what's going on so I don't, I, I don't know what patients are thinking because, you know, my, my fellow GPs are so busy that they don't know what's going on either. So from my perspective, I should make clear that I'm actually not directly affected by this. I am a GP in Wales. This does not apply to Wales um, or to England or to Scotland or to Northern Ireland. And it is, it is um, work that's being done by, by NHS Digital um, to get data on people who are actively registered with a GP in England. No, that's the only people that it affects. Um, so my interest in this is just the same way that in the, in the same way that a lot of people even that are running like local data projects and working with it with data in NHS is that this can reduce a lot of trust in in the uses of data. So so people generally trust the NHS, they generally trust the GP, um, but trust is easily easily lost. Um, and it's important that everything that we do, whenever we manage patient data, that it's very clear that our uses of it are ethical and that they are safe. Um, and it's not enough just to be doing the right thing, but you have to be seen to do the right thing. And these are complicated, nerdy kind of issues, you know, that really I, I've seen this being talked about because I attend some things as a, a representative from Wales, because I also have a, a role where I work in our a national digital health and care organization in uh, associate medical director for primary care so i attend um different kind of groups as a as a sort of a national representative uh, on that and i've heard it and been seen it being talked about and being presented and there was generally quite widespread support from gps for this move to centralize this data collection because it reduces a lot of risks for gps at the moment data goes out from gp practices lots of different places often the gps are joint data controllers um they have uncertainty over how the other people are actually managing this so in a way 
this is kind of like de-risking by putting it over to NHS Digital, who should have the resources to be able to manage uh, and do this appropriately. They can set up independent groups like Professional Advisory Group and iGuard and other independent group lay representation on this to look at it, can manage all the publications about it. Um, but even with their resources, I don't know honestly why they have got this so wrong in their communication about it. Everybody knew this was going to be difficult. It went wrong with Cardata. This is significantly improved compared to what Cardata was about. There's no, I think there's no disagreement about that. But they just have not managed to communicate in any way clearly enough what's actually sort of going on, go, going on, going on with it. And these nerdy kind of issues over when should you have sort of anonymized data leaving? What's actually an appropriate way to do it? What, how do you actually report this? We need to skill up people a lot to be able to actually get to grips with these things because um, Phil is a person that I really like talking to about this because Phil is always very clear, knows what he's talking about. You can actually sort of say, okay, so that's the point you're trying to make. I'm happy about that. I can now kind of figure out how I'm engaging with that. But so often in this, you come across people that have actually got a slight misrepresentation of it. People say things like the national data opt-out only applies to hospital data. No, it doesn't. It applies to GP data. The reason this is a different, the reason you have a type one doctor is for a different reason. That's just one of the examples that you come across again and again where people get sort of the wrong end of the stick. And it just makes you realize there is so much skilling up to sort of be done about this. That privacy isn't doesn't depend on just having like a national data opt-out. There are very clear, you know, legitimate reasons why you should manage it. How much can you do in two months about that? Come back to your question. How much whenever this has been planned for years? And we've got two months now to try and get this over to people. What can you actually manage to achieve within it and, and get people understanding and really picking up what the really the risky sort of you know issues are? Yeah, just just a couple of things, if it's OK. I mean, I guess I, I don't think there's an inherent conflict here. We all want positive ethical uses of patients data. And that's what we've said all along. We want every use of patients data to be consensual safe and transparent and those things now really have come to the fore as actually meaningful practical things that need to be done um i mean this isn't care.data okay that's something that obviously the press will will talk about but i mean frankly it's much bigger collection than care.data and it isn't excluding the sensitive highly sensitive codes which care.data excluded and you know it's um taking the historical data um at the first upload without deleting it ever. Uh, these are all differences from care.data which would need communicating and justifying um, to, to the public. But I think what's happening here is unfortunately what sort of happened previously as well is that poor old NHS Digital, which was then the Health and Social Care Information Centre, because it's the one that's actually delivering the programme, is getting a lot of the blame. And from our interactions, we, MedConfidential, were cited on um, the first document we ever saw about GPDPR was, I think, on the 27th or 28th of March this year. Given that this program has been you know, in development for three years, you know, and we're clearly a stakeholder, that seemed to us to be a bit odd. And we pointed out that the legal bases in the documents we were shown were, were not correct. And you know, this, we went through a bunch of iterations before the announcement on, on the 12th of May. So there has been, uh, we have certainly detected, and others may be able to s say similar, that this has really been driven 
from the top. Let's not forget that this is directed by the Secretary of State. Yeah, Matt Hancock didn't sign the actual letter to NHS Digital. That was signed by a chap at NHS X. But it is clear that this is a direction from the Secretary of State. This is a government pressure to get this done. And that other bodies, not just NHS Digital, which is a creature of statute, it, it basically does what it is told to do and what it is given the resources to do. Um, it is being you know, told, you know, directed from policymakers at NHS X, which, although it sounds like it's an NHS body, actually is just a sort of joint working arrangement between the Department of Health and NHS England. So below the surface, there's a lot more complexity than I think could, frankly, ever reasonably be communicated to patients. I don't think that patients should have to know how the NHS, in all its complexity, works in order to be able to, well, obviously, first, get the care that they need, but second, in order for them to be able to trust it to do the right things with their data. And so we've always said we need a clear communication. That clear communication can't just be a bunch of words. Those words have to be true. So this is not about selling the benefits. This is not about coming up with a different form of words because that might land better. It is actually about fixing the fundamental parts that all of us have spoken about uh, in this podcast, which then can be communicated honestly, openly to patients for them to make a choice. Yeah. And then just leading on from that, I think the, the fact that it's been extended has been welcomed, but um, probably needs to be longer, I think, if we're to be absolutely honest, because um, I think a, a national direction came out on the 12th of May with a six-week window. Uh, that was definitely not uh, long enough. Um, and uh, just that in itself has, has just raised lots of um, questions about how data is actually going to be used, because we, we've been doing lots of um, data sharing for direct care primarily um, locally. And one of the things we're really keen on is saying, actually, we want to do stuff locally and we've got um, uh, publicity with our local population. We've got you know, privacy notices and, and everything else available for patients to openly see what, what we are doing and who we're sharing it with. Um, and we'd really want to continue with that. But I think what this has done is put a spanner in the works to that as well, because of the fact you can't really separate local from national um, data opt out. So one of the things that I'd, I'd really want to hear is some way that a we need to communicate better. We need to sort this mess out. But also um, patients, as you know, as, as citizens, as, as they mentioned in Parliament, Parliament is. Uh, are, are actually informed where their data is going, how it's being used, and have the option for um, allowing it to flow where they feel as data controllers themselves as patients and the practices who hold the data um, as to where, where they feel would, would best fit with their patient care overall. Can I just come in from a patient's perspective here? I'm going to take my digital health hat off here. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I did find what you were saying, Phil, about patients not you know, they shouldn't be expected to understand the inner workings of the NHS to really understand this program. And I thought that was really interesting because on the one hand, for me, I like I understand, I say I understand it because of work. I even found it hard to wrap my head around this and I understand how all of the different organizations work. But just from like 
a patient's perspective, I'm quite happy for my data to be shared because I know the benefits that this data can have for medical research and just like it overall, the benefits that it's going to bring to care. I just want a conversation about who's going to have access to it and the parameters in which they will have access to it. Like, what are they eventually going to be able to determine about me? Um, I know that there's some information about postcodes potentially being shared. Does that mean that, say, I live in an area that might drive up higher insurance premiums one day when I don't necessarily have the same you know, conditions that might drive up an insurance an in, insurance premium? Sorry. Like, I, just, I just want a conversation. Like, I'm not saying this is a bad idea. I'm not saying no, absolutely not. I just want someone to sit down and explain to me where my data is going and who will have access to it. And I think, you know, it wasn't that long ago that there was meetings between big tech companies like Microsoft and Amazon. Um, I think there was quite a few others there, but those are the two I can remember. Um, and there was discussion about creating a like a longitudinal health record of everyone's patient records from the UK, which is worth billions, I think 10 billion pounds a year. Um, which you know, the, the government has a lot to gain from this if they're, you know, selling this data to tech companies. So I, I just think they need to be a bit more open about it because I think as soon as they do something where they're not explaining this to patients, we're going to lose the thing that makes the NHS really important. And that is the patients trust their doctors and their clinicians to be looking after them. And we're going to have a whole other health crisis on our hands, I think. Yeah, that's very true. And, and, and let's be really clear. The only database that is worth having out of this process is one that everyone can trust. Yeah. yeah? Researchers, yeah. planners, everyone else, you know, this this needs to be have been gathered lawfully and ethically and maintained in that way. Otherwise, it's not actually going to be any use to ethical research uh, and medical research because it just won't be ethically valid. But some of those companies which you mentioned, of course, aren't bound by you know, research ethics or medical ethics, and we've seen during the pandemic, certainly bodies like NHS England retain the services of companies that you know, previously have worked for you know, the American, American military, law enforcement, intelligence services like Palantir. We've seen companies like Faculty AI, which had very close links with you know, Dominic Cummings and Number 10, get sort of what seems like preferential sort of um, you know, contracts that have been actually dealing with patient data through what's called the Palantir uh, data platform uh, called Foundry. So while at this stage we are in emergency pandemic conditions and certainly you know we can't say that we would have been able to do some of the things that we've been able to do without the help of those companies, if we are going forward we need to address all of that and we need to address one other really crucial thing which is, I talked about this safe setting, this thing where if the data comes up, it, it stays inside what's called a five safes, safe setting, sometimes called a trusted research environment. Uh, I think Wales has SAIL uh, that does this. Um, so it's the dissemination of the data. It's the sending out of copies that is at the heart of the problem. For every copy that you send out, you introduce a whole bunch of, of risks. And... If we get into a situation where the NHS is collecting all of this data, but then it is being passed around as copies to even other bodies of the NHS, like NHS England, and ultimately making its way into 
the uh, platforms of companies like Palantir or allowing faculty AI, which working very closely with NHSX's AI lab to train up its AI models uh, and then be able to sort of exploit them. Yeah, we're talking about a really quite different future than I think most patients would be aware of. And certainly patients who have been told, well, this is for necessary planning and for clinical research and it's to do with COVID and all these other things. You know, we can already show that for you know, years and ongoing, NHS Digital in its own release registers, it releases large scale copies of individual level pseudonymized patient data to commercial companies, you know, termed information intermediaries that are, can sub-license access to that data to customers that we don't know. They're not reported. You can go to the websites of some of these named commercial information intermediaries and see that they clearly say we, we, we service NHS bodies, but we also service pharmaceutical companies and data companies and device companies who then use our information to go and market their products, services back to the NHS and try and profit that way. So there is a huge amount of value tied up in this. And I think we need to be really sophisticated and stop talking about the data and start talking about the value. And I was just going to come, come back to one word, which kind of leads onto that. And that's the word we mentioned earlier called trust. And I think, you know, this, this data is being collected, which is absolutely fantastic for things like research and planning and, and everything else. And I think we do it in a safe way. But in order to Get, collate that data there's there's a trust that happens between doctor and patient at the beginning and if we are at risk of destroying that at whatever level we're going to affect the quality of anything that comes out of it in terms of research and development and planning after that so I've had plenty of conversations with patients who who have been clued up and aren't clued up uh, and those that are clued up have you know patients that I know and I've built up a relationship with um, say actually I, I wouldn't tell you this much if I knew that my data was going to be um, sent elsewhere because I'm trusting you to look after my data I don't want anyone else to know about uh, and you know some patients who don't know about it come in and say look you know I, I'm going to tell you this I, I, you're going to keep it to yourself I don't want anyone else to know about this about me so, so it's those kind of conversations that um, you know I build up that trust with my patients and if they come to find that actually this is happening not only did they not know but me as a gp didn't know that's going to create havoc not only with the patients who will just be really skeptical skeptical uh skeptical yeah whatever that word is so um not wanting to give that information to me as their practitioner but also me as their practitioner being wary about coding that information and writing it down so we're going to lose that quality and, and that'll affect patient care so i think we really need to be careful about maintaining that trust I think that that is a point, but you've got, if people are concerned about that, there's an awful lot more work that's going on about shared, sharing records, which will make that probably available in a real way with that person, not in the context where it's actually being recorded, which if that person's worried about that, I know you're worried about that, is a much bigger risk than the data going off and being pseudonymized at source and going in and possibly going back out to your CCG to help plan something about their care and figure out how many people have diabetes with mental health problems or, or whatever so yeah those things are they are 
you know, just to sort of say we managed to deliver vaccination campaigns and all sorts of things in Wales without any involvement of Palantir or any companies by actually building the software ourselves and doing it. I'm very proud of that. Um, but you do have to work sometimes with partners to be able to get yourself skilled up and actually saying we had the advantage of the vaccination that we'd already developed the child health system that we could therefore repurpose it and people work non-stop without taking any leave and things like that but you in this data space people do have to work with partners and I think Phil you make a good point about who those partners are and how do you work with them and the transparency over um, if data goes out to intermediaries how does it go on? I think the politicians have deluded themselves that because there has been a lot of data sharing under the extraordinary copy powers during the pandemic that the public is generally more comfortable with sharing their data and that just is not true. People are clearly comfortable with sharing their data when we're in a, a, a in shared a pandemic and we need to do that yeah. but when you get a thing like this which is not actually about COVID. Yeah. As I say, there's, there's GDPPR. This program is going for a year for pandemic planning and research with, with GP data. If you do something that's going to be ongoing and is a generalized, what they call, uh, I think they even say the language, extract once, use many times approach, then you have to justify that. And you can't hide behind COVID uses because you're already getting that data. Yeah, You may not be able to continue to get the same data once the copy notices expire, but you know there are other lawful ways to do that than just saying, give us everything. And I would hope that in not too long, I don't think it'll happen in two months, it may not even happen in six, but I would hope that we could get to a place where there could be sale with its TRE, there could be spire, with its TRE, there could be NHS Digital with its TRE, and then we could even look at things like when there, you know, at the moment we've got genomic data, which is being gathered by Genomics England, which is turning into the Genomics Medicine Service within the NHS. That's spanning both England and Scotland. Anne Marie can tell me if it's got it's it's it's, it's spanning Wales. But you know, there's a, there's there's a there's a future where if we get this right. The information that's needed for legitimate, ethical, positive research, planning, and all of those other good uses can be done. If we don't get it right, and I don't think we've got more than half a chance left because of this false start again, then we could be throwing away you know, a generation of value. The stakes are more high than what is this data worth in pounds. It's what is this data, what is, what is it worth in terms of trust? I'm just going to quickly just just to highlight the talk talked about the copy notices that are out there, and I think certainly just from a local experience, um, we we've been involved in home pulse oximetry um, during um, you know when the um, the, the uh, pandemic was at its peak, and uh, we were monitoring patients at home, and the copy notices uh, came down that we had to uh, um, submit patient identifiable data to that service through NHS Digital through that notice. Um, and that, that caught everyone by surprise, just that. And that was fed back to NHS Digital to say, actually, um, okay, it's it's mandated. We're going to try and work with you. And we still actually are still trying to resolve it because we feel that patients should be informed about that before we um, submit their details. And that's something we've got working progress. But, you know, you would have thought lessons would have been learned from KP issues. I think a final note to maybe kind of end on is 
there has been, I think the main commentary running through across the last few weeks and especially in the last few days is that people generally support this. You know, there is a use for this data to for research and planning purpose. And I'm myself one of them. But it's this whole idea. And it's what you said, Osman, is about trust and maintaining that public trust in the NHS, which is so vital. So I guess my final question is what should ha- what's going to happen next from now until September or whenever? What do you think should happen now? And to, in, to in order to ensure that this trust is maintained, because like you said, without trust, you're not going to get anywhere and we're going to be back in the care.data days. So I'm not sure if, Osman, you want to go first, kind of what do you think needs to happen? So, so, so I, I think that there, there is certainly some communication that needs to be sorted out and, and clarified. I think the whole system is a mess and I think uh, there needs to be clear communication to patients and to um, clinicians whose data, the GPs, who are the current data controllers. So, so it's to, to the patients, the main, main focus is this is what we are planning to do with your data. This is where it's going. Um, this, this is the kind of things that you know, we're, we're taking out, everything. Um, and if you do not wish to participate, this is how you go about doing it. And there is a clear process to opt out. I would even go as far as to say, actually, we need to change that to vary the level of um, opting out, because I, th- I think there is certainly a risk of national objectives and local objectives. And, and speaking um, uh, as a GP working locally, where we're, we're doing quite a lot with um, local data sharing for direct care, uh, we just want to make sure that patients don't get confused, because there is confusion around if I opt out, it'll affect my direct care. Um, and, and that's something we need to be clear about. And as well as that, it's to the data controllers. H- half the uh, you know the decisions that are made in general practice will be actioned by practice managers within those practices um, by uh, j- just um, guidance from the uh, GPs themselves, the partners who work in the practice. And, mm-hmm. and the actual guidance needs to go to them as well. So you can't just inform um, GPs and say, this is what's happening. You need to uh, have the whole workforce knowing actually this is what is happening so that information can be disseminated. Even today, I've had messages from some practices who've said, um, we've received these forms, what do we do with it? And these are reception staff who are getting these forms because the practice manager is unaware of what, what's happened. So there needs to be clear communication as to what needs to happen. Um, and uh, I hope it will happen. Um, I, I suppose that the cynic in me is is a bit dubious because I think we need more time to do it properly. And I think that's that's the worry that I, I have. Patients aren't informed and my fear is that trust will break. I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. It's definitely a subject where I think people could spend hours talking about. So maybe in future, we're going to have to do a few more of these. Thanks to our panel for taking part and to all our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget Digital Health Unplugged is published fortnightly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and the usual podcast platforms. So please do give us a follow on any of those to keep up to date with what we're doing. And if you've got a podcast suggestion, we're really keen to hear from you. You can get in touch on podcasts at digitalhealth.net. That's it for this episode. We'll catch you in two weeks time. You've been listening to Digital Health Unplugged. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more episodes or to keep up to date with what Digital Health Unplugged is doing, you can give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast channel. If you want to know more about digital health, our news and events, you can head on over to digitalhealth.net.